Welcome to uh, South Sub Church as we have uh, come to you in the midst of the suburbs. Our uh, worship center sanctuary is currently under, uh, well, construction, I guess. Uh, the upgrades uh, that we have been planning for several months are being installed this week. We're excited about the progress. Hope that you'll, um, uh, if you're able, to check it out. Um, a lot of the um, uh, lights and the sound have needed to be replaced, uh, weren't working, breaking down, and we're finally getting those squared away. And in just a few short weeks, uh, we'll be live streaming. So you will be experiencing the same thing uh, that folks who are coming in person will be experiencing. And we're excited about uh, the uh, 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 fruition, if you will, of this phase one of our strategic plan, which is to bring our online congregation and our in-person congregation together. And uh, so I pray that it will be a blessing to you. We're excited what God is doing. Uh, we're continuing in the midst of our series, uh, Stuck in the Suburbs. And today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 12, uh, verses 13 through 21. So if you have your Bibles or your tablet or however you read God's Word, uh, we'd encourage you to get that as we look at this. Um, last week we talked uh, about false prophets and we looked at uh, those false prophets, not only that we sometimes see in the life of faith, specifically the church, but the false prophets in our community. Uh, those prophets that declare to us that if we buy their product or seek to live the way they say we should uh, live, we'll find happiness. And in many ways, we're continuing in that theme, for it is one of, the, uh, one of the greatest temptations in the life of everyone, and specifically in the suburbs. And so we're going to be uh, looking at this text uh, difficult words to hear from Jesus. So if you found uh, that uh, passage in Luke chapter 12, uh, let's together read God's word. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Years ago, in my first church out of seminary, I had a secretary who had a friend who was really struggling financially most of their life. Uh, now, this couple had worked hard, uh, but they could just never seem to get ahead. That is, until a relative died and left them an empty, small piece of land just outside of Virginia Beach, Virginia. It was an area that was zoned commercial. Well, they first thought that they would sell this piece of property to some of the surrounding businesses, but none of the surrounding businesses were interested in purchasing the land. 
So they thought, well, maybe we could have the land rezoned and build our dream house there. But who wants to live in the midst of a commercial district? So they began to do some market research. And they settled on what seems to be a lesser-known business. Now, now this business that they were looking at boasts an 11% profit margin uh, once it's been going by year three. Now, that's twice pretty much what any other business profit margin would be. This particular business could pay the bills at 60 to 70% utilization. And on average, this particular business grew 90% year over year. As a matter of fact, Forbes magazine did a story on this particular industry that they were looking at. And it is currently an $87.65 billion a year industry. And it's expected to grow to $115.62 billion over the next three years. That's a growth rate of 135% year over year. This business, I bet some of you are rethinking your own line of business now. Well, you might have figured it out. It's the self-storage industry. Now, what happened to my secretary's friend? Well, um, within one year, they went from barely being able to pay their bills to millionaires. They now have multiple self-storage units all over the Commonwealth of Virginia, a new home on the waterfront, and the husband decided to take flying lessons and bought his own airplane. One in 11 Americans pays for space to store their material overflow of the American dream. Now, in other words, people pay money not just for the stuff, but for a place to park the stuff. It's a beautiful business model. Because no matter whether the economy is booming or receding, whether we're dealing with downsizing empty nesters or upstarting millennials, the whole business is built on the unshakable truth that people love their stuff. It's the reason the self-storage business is such a success. People don't want to part with their stuff. Now, now, now let, let me begin by saying, I think God is okay with you having stuff. So much so that one of his commandments is uh, intended to protect your stuff. Um, as a matter of fact, if you look at the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal. Your stuff is your stuff, and I don't have a right to it. As a matter of fact, in the teaching of the Reformers of the Protestant Reformation, when they taught uh, the people about this commandment, they said that it was not only required of me not to steal your stuff, but that I should help protect your stuff. If someone's in the act of stealing your stuff, I have a responsibility to help stop them, to report them, to prosecute them. As a matter of fact, we all do that, whether we know it or not. We, we pay taxes that pay police officers, uh, support court systems, uh, support prisons to deal with folks who do try or are successful at stealing our stuff. Th there's another commandment that uh, speaks to this. I'm not supposed to desire or covet 
your stuff. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's house or possessions. But embedded in these commandments is a warning for those of us who have stuff. That stuff should not take over our lives. Where's that commandment? Well, that's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. You will not bow down to other idols. Now, what is a god with a little g? The church has always taught that God is one from whom we expect the essence of goodness, one in whom we take refuge in times of distress. Now, now, now listen, brothers and sisters, here's where it gets a little bit uncomfortable and calls upon us to do some self-reflection. And this is the statement that I want to share with you. Whatever we set our hearts on, whatever we put our trust in, is truly our God. Now, for many of us, stuff is our God. Money is our God. Now, the ancient people actually gave this God a name. His name is Mammon. Now, you remember Jesus saying something like this, and actually the King James Version translates this the best way when Jesus is quoted as saying, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Here's the verse. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, a lot of historians say that Mammon was a Syrian deity of wealth. We see this god pop up in other uh, 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 religions as well. The Greek god Plutus, the Roman god Despater. And many in the early church and in the medieval church said that Mammon, this god, was actually a demon, a fallen angel, uh, the one who was set by the powers of darkness to capture the heart of every human being. For the human heart is so susceptible to money, to greed, to the acquisition of stuff. Did you know that Jesus talks about money more than he talked about heaven or hell in the New Testament? The only topic Jesus talked about more than money was the kingdom of God. Eleven out of Jesus' 39 parables are about money. That's about 28% of his sermons. 28, almost 30% of his sermons are about money. Now, if I were to translate that over to my own preaching, that means that I would be preaching on stewardship, on giving, on greed, 14 and a half Sundays out of the year. That's three and a half months of sermons devoted to money. One out of every seven verses in the Gospel of Luke talks about money. Now, there's a reason for that. Because Jesus knows the power of our greed and of our desire for money and our desire for stuff and how it can distract us and even destroy us. As a matter of fact, Jesus calls this, the Bible calls this greed, this desire for money, this desire for stuff, idolatry. And the Bible says that idolatry is in its basic sense a rejection of God and a sure 
and certain path to eternal destruction. In our gospel lesson today, the man is having a problem with his brother. They're arguing over their inheritance. You probably have known people in your own life that have done that. Jesus knows we human beings argue over this sort of stuff. There's a hierarchy, isn't there, in our lives about these things. Don't mess with my kids. Don't mess with my wife or my husband. And don't mess with my money. Those are deal breakers, aren't they? Now, for some of us, we might reorder that list. But did you know that 40% of married couples don't know what their spouse earns? One of the reasons for our marriage conference that we'll be hosting in November 19th and 20th is because these sorts of things tear families apart. Money is one of the top three things married couples argue over. And almost half of our married couples don't trust their spouse enough to share that information with them. That's an issue. (laughs) Nothing can rip siblings asunder than when mom and dad haven't left clear instructions on how the estate is to be split up. And Jesus is pretty blunt here. Seriously. He says to this man, look, that issue with your brother and how to split up that inheritance, that's not important enough to come to me. Now, did you hear that? And then Jesus directs the crowd to the Ten Commandments, which is why I started the message that way today. Take care, Jesus says, and be on guard against all, there it is, covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Now, why is it that we get hung up on stuff, on money? Well, I I bet most of us, when we think about money, we think about it in two ways. Maybe a few more, but certainly these two. Number one, we think that money will buy us happiness. Uh, Money does buy nice cars. It buys nice houses. It buys clothes. It provides for vacations, big screen TVs, new Apple watches. (laughs) My dad would always say that he had heard that money may not buy happiness, but it makes misery a little more comfortable. We think stuff's important in our culture, so much so that we can't even let go of it. And now we're back to storage units, aren't we? But we also think that money buys us security. Now, I'm not upset about that. I have a pension fund, some small investments that I hope will grow. But we don't want to be in poverty. We talked about that last week, that so many of us have a fear of poverty, and rightly so. Back in the 60s and 70s, it was hard to get a home loan. My parents rented almost all of their lives until they had saved up enough money to buy a house using cash. In our market here in the Denver metropolitan area, lots of people are worried about housing and security. It's a real fear for many of us. So here we are. Money buying happiness. Money buying security. Now, remember earlier when we said about what we can do to determine who our God is? Whatever we set our heart on, whatever we put our trust in, that's our God. Our heart is on money, mammon, the pagan God, the demon. Hmm. Well, 
what is perfectly clear is for too many of us, our heart isn't on Christ. And man, that's hard to hear, isn't it? Now, am I telling you not to buy a home? Well, of course not. Am I telling you not to provide for your later years in life? Well, no. But God blesses us so that we can be a blessing. When our trust and our efforts and our fear lead us to hold on to stuff or hold stuff too close and not welcome a spirit or or a culture of generosity into our lives, well, our view of stuff begins to get warped. We think it's ours. We earned it. It's, It's something that comforts us rather than understanding it is something God has given to us so that we can give to others. We think it's ours for our use. Look at God's word again. Verse 16, and Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully and he thought of himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods. He wanted to build a new storage unit. I have more than I can use, he said. And what crosses his mind? To share it? To give it to the temple? To recognize that God has blessed him so that he can be a blessing? No. He looks for a way to hold on to his stuff. And then look what he does. Look look at verse 19. And I will say to my soul, soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. He speaks to his own soul. He becomes his own God. The purpose of my good fortune, he thinks, is for my benefit. I am my own God. I bow down to myself, and I build for myself my own cathedral with an altar upon which I can put all of my grain so that I can enjoy life. It's an all-too-human deception, isn't it? And then look what God says in verse 20. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Because they won't be his. (laughs) So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Brothers and sisters, next year I will have stood behind a pulpit for 30 years, done hundreds of funerals, and I has as of yet ever seen a U-Haul hooked up to a hearse. This stuff in our lives... It can seriously lead to death. Richard Foster, an author, pastor, and speaker, has a wonderful perspective on stuff. He's the author of the book, Celebration of Discipline. And he writes about what it means to live simply. And first, before I tell you that, he gives 10 guidelines for living simply. Number one, buy things for their usefulness rather than their status. Number two, reject anything that is producing an addiction in you. Number three, develop a habit of giving things away. Number four, refuse to be propagandized by the custodians of modern gadgetry. Number five, learn to enjoy things without owning them. Number six, develop a deeper appreciation for the creation. Number seven, look with healthy skepticism at all buy now, pay later schemes. Number eight, 
Obey Jesus' instruction about plain, honest speech. Number nine, reject anything that breeds the oppression of others. And number 10, shun anything that distracts you from seeking first the kingdom of God. Now, those, as long as, uh, along with other uh, uh, notes, will be in your study guide. You can get that on our Version Bible app or uh, uh, email us at office at southsub.church, and we'll be glad to send it to you. You know what I really like about what Richard Foster says about living simply? It isn't about getting rid of everything in your life, necessarily. It's recognizing that the things that are in your life are from God. And that God has given them, given them to you to bless others, to support his church, to build the kingdom. Did you know that living generously, giving stuff away, being folks who are generous with our finances, actually triggers the release of serotonin, oxytocin, and dopamine in our brains? Now, that's the chemicals in your brain, the happy chemicals that mediate satisfaction, happiness, optimism, and it actually counteracts the effect of the stress hormone, cortisol, which causes you to get heavy around the center. (laughs) An addition to your diet and exercise plan could also be a generosity plan. Look, this is nothing more than how God works. God has created us and our very natural being to be generous, to benefit physically as well as spiritually from a spirit of generosity. And here's how giving works. God models this for us. God gives us everything. Not only the skies, the trees, the land, but the houses and the cars that are behind us. And he asks of us to give back to him at least 10% which is what the word tithe means, tenth. Now, now for some of us, that might be more than 10%. In the early church, the deacons would bring the bread, uh, wine, oil, and tithe to the elders. And here's what God does. God receives those gifts. He blesses them, and then he returns them to us. The tithe to support the work of the church, to care for the widows and orphans, to support the work of pastors and elders, the oil to anoint the sick, and the bread and the wine, you know it, they were given back to the people in the Lord's Supper. God doesn't just keep it. God doesn't put our tithes in a storeroom in heaven somewhere and revels in it. God blesses it, God sanctifies it, God makes it holy, and God gives it back to the ones whom he loves, me and you. God doesn't need me to give. I need me to give to show myself that my trust is in the Lord. Now listen, this has been a horrible pandemic for all of us and continues to be. Our congregation is seeking to be as faithful as it can to speak the good news of Jesus Christ to the community around us. And many of you may know that not everyone has come back to church yet, and we understand that. Many of you are here, and we celebrate that. 
But because of that, our church is also struggling. We want to do the things God has called us to do. I don't want to appeal to you out of a, a sense of need or fear. I, you, you can call any of our lay leaders and discuss that. I'm your pastor, and I love you. And we want to appeal to you out of your heart and out of God's word. If you pray today, God, give me a generous heart, I can guarantee you your life will change in every aspect. Physically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. It's not about giving a certain uh, uh, amount that, that, like some TV preachers, will bless and triple that and give it back to you. It's about giving all of yourself to God and waiting for God to bless it and give it back to you so that you can give it again. It's a beautiful divine circle, a life, a culture of generosity, a culture that our congregation embraces, excited about the future God is calling us into as a community and as individuals. Will you pray with me? Merciful God, we confess that too often we have surrounded ourselves with stuff and claimed the benefits of our work as our own. And Lord, we know that you want to bless us and give us good things, but too often, God, the, the flesh and the brokenness in our own lives has placed our trust and hope in those things rather than in you. So Lord, we thank you for your generosity to us, and we pray, O oh God, that today that spirit of generosity will become a part of our spirits as well. For your glory, for the work of your church, for the care of the whole world. In Jesus' name, amen.